Welcome to Uncomfortable Millennials. In Season 1's Modern Virtues, we explore how ancient philosophy and behavioral science can help us on the pursuit of happiness and self-development. Today's Modern Virtue is on ambition. Sonia Diab, thank you for joining once again. And today I want to talk about money. So I grew up on the phrase that money isn't everything. And I'm sure that many of you did as well. But today I'm more interested in, even though it's not everything, is money still something? Does it contribute to our happiness? Or was Jay-Z right when he said, more money, more problems? Humans seem to have a really complex relationship with money and the human interest in money does extend to the sciences. There were a lot of studies that I found to a point where for this, I actually ended up having to cut some out. So we're going to see where that all leads us, the different rabbit holes we end up going down there. And the modern virtue that we're looking at in all of this is that of ambition. We have to consider money and wealth as part of that because Many people's goals these days include some element of financial gain. And our social culture has also, in my view, very much become a place where people are encouraged by random Facebook ads to, you know, achieve your dreams and make $8 billion with my six-week course. How exciting. But money is also not the only kind of ambition. So we don't want to stop there. Aristotle considers ambition to be a virtue, and the other ancient philosophers I looked at had some interesting thoughts too, both about the acquisition of wealth and also what I would put into a modern virtue definition of ambition. And we can see ambition in many different parts of our lives. Today, goal attainment is always in front of our faces, and society is constantly planting these seeds that we should do more, be more, achieve more. But right now, the fast pace of the world has been disrupted and we have a moment of solace to actually ask, is that what we should be doing? Are high achievers actually happier? Is an excess of ambition a good thing? In a world where busy is the new normal, people work themselves to the ground. They're contactable by their employers and clients 24-7. They throw more hours into work than possibly anything else in the name of achieving goals and The question is, are all of those hours and is all of that determination actually worth it? Or are we better off slowing down and not worrying so much about what we achieve? So in other words, I want to explore, in addition to the money piece, is ambition today a virtue or a vice? So the structure that we're looking at is as follows. First, I'm going to explore the science behind money and happiness. What kind of connection, if anything, is there? Following on from that, that led me to looking at lottery winners. So there's going to be a little bit more science to start with in this one, but then we're going to go into what our ancient philosophers say about money and the acquisition of wealth, then different kinds of ambition more broadly, including some weird research I found on Oscar winners and Olympic medalists. And finally, the good and bad side of ambition, some different perspectives around the effects of ambition on goal setting And also looking at that in the modern context of, well, how can I develop this in a way that's going to help me? Should I develop it at all? Or is it a vice? There's so much to explore in this episode. We need to just jump straight in. So first to the question of whether earning more money makes us happier. What I found from the studies I looked at is the answer seems to be yes. 
but with some careful caveats. What I found was first of all, and we should keep this in mind as we go forward, scientists tend to group the assessment of the impact of money into two different categories. So we have emotional well-being, where we can think of that as like your daily happiness level, how likely you are to have a good day or a stressful day or a bad day. And then they also look at your overall life satisfaction or your life evaluation. And that one is more general. It's more about your long-term happiness, your long-term satisfaction with where you are in life. And in lots of the studies, they assessed both of these things as two different areas. So onto the studies. First, there was a study in 2010 where Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist Daniel Kahneman, along with Angus Deaton, looked at how earnings impact on happiness. They found a couple of things. One was that, unsurprisingly, if you don't have much of an income, you're more likely to have increased emotional pain. No money, you're less happy. That seems fair. If you consider something like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is that famous little triangle that theorizes what humans are motivated towards, the very bottom of that triangle, the core needs that humans have that we need first is things like food and water, sleep, and then up to security and a feeling of safety. So if you don't have the capacity financially to secure your basic needs, it makes absolute sense with this finding that your happiness will plummet if you don't have enough money. On the other side, they found that as your income increases, so too does your day-to-day happiness. But they determined that this applied to a threshold and the threshold was about $75,000 US. After that, they posit that your emotional day-to-day feeling is likely going to be influenced by other factors that money can't really help. But 75K was considered the good point by which you can probably at that stage afford to spend time with people you care about, to stay healthy and to do things that make you happy. So I read this as even though you'll still probably have a moment of happiness if you get a pay rise above that, if you go from 200K a year to 220K a year, that's great, you'll still feel happy, but it probably won't make as much of a difference to your life as a pay rise from 50 to 75 They didn't find the same kind of satiation point when it comes to your life evaluation or that broader sense of happiness and satisfaction. So at this point, I was interested in that. And I was also interested in what the case is for Australia. So I turned then to a 2018 study which examined data from the Gallup World Poll. The researchers found, again, same as our last one, that there were income points of satiation. So after a certain point, Money doesn't make you happier on the day-to-day emotional well-being side. And in this one, they also found a point where you no longer increase in your satisfaction in your life evaluation. First, in general, this was over the whole globe, and in general, they found the satiation point for the day-to-day happiness, the emotional well-being, ranges from between around $60,000 a year to $75,000 a year. So this aligns with the 2010 study pretty well. For the life evaluation, the satiation point they found was $95,000 across the globe. And that's in US dollars, by the way. But they also found that there were variations depending on your education and where in the world you're located. Australia and New Zealand had one of the highest satiation points for life evaluation at $125,000 US, which I think with the current dollar rates gets us to about 190 grand. But at the time, I think it was closer to 160 grand. I don't know. I am feeling the urge to stick with US dollars here because as the economy is going a bit nuts, it's getting too confusing. But the patterns that they found suggest that in wealthier nations, 
that point is reflected. So you have a higher number. So for Australia and New Zealand, for your overall life satisfaction, you want to earn around $125,000 a year US. And then for the day-to-day happiness for Australia and New Zealand, they found it was around 50,000. So our general day-to-day positive experiences and what I assume would also include our reduced daily negative experiences actually dropped off a bit earlier than the global average. Perhaps unsurprisingly, they also found that people who were more educated had a higher amount of money that they had to reach in order to reach that point. So the effects of higher income continued for longer, which I mean, if anyone's been through those painstaking years of university, I empathize with that. After all, you feel as though you've worked so hard, you want it to pay off. Maybe you have particularly high expectations or aspirations, and that probably has an effect. One of the surprising things was that they discovered for the life evaluation, not only is there a point of satiation, but after you hit that point, you actually start to reduce in your subjective well-being as you earn more. And they called these turning points. And that's pretty interesting because the inference there is that there really is a perfect amount of money to be made for you to get maximum happiness out of it. This also brings us, of course, to the modern idea where people don't only look for a job where we can make the most money. A friend asked me the other day, if you were offered a purely process-oriented job, so for example, making boxes in a factory, which as an aside might appeal to some people, not my style, that's why he asked me that, and if you were offered this job for a million dollars a year, would you take it? A million dollars to make boxes? And I said, of course not. That's not what I'm interested in. And I don't think that I'd be alone in the millennial generation in that judgment. As much as we seem to be seeing more perceived materialism, especially through social media, we also seem to relate our professions to a larger part of our identity than simply something that pays the bills. I don't think I could tell you the amount of millennials I've worked with who have left their job for something that pays less, but feels more aligned to their values. So perhaps we are more drawn and perhaps there are generational differences there with the idea of fulfillment through our jobs rather than maximizing our incomes or maximizing our financial security. But then back to money. What about millionaires? What about the extravagantly rich people with helicopters and absurd homes that look like an art gallery and they have a chauffeur for their cat? I mean, are these people significantly happier or are they more akin to, you know, the Mr. Scrooge miserly character who's really sad inside? I did find a few studies here. One was a study of more than 4,000 millionaires, which suggested that low-level millionaires, so people in the net worth of around the one or two million kind of area, weren't significantly associated with higher well-being. But the big guns, people who had over eight or 10 million, did have a modestly increased level of well-being. So it's more likely, it seems, that you'll increase your happiness as a double-digit millionaire than a baby one which is interesting because it adds an additional layer to the studies we've looked at so far. The other finding they had in that study was that how the money came to the millionaires made a big difference. If you'd earned it yourself, you were happier than if you inherited it or came into it in some random way, which is interesting because we have correlation there, but we don't necessarily have causation. So it could mean that if you earn lots and lots of money, millions and millions and millions of dollars, you're happier. But it could also mean that happier people are more likely to increase their wealth a whole lot more than unhappy people. But then I thought, okay, well, if how you make the money makes a difference, then what about the lottery? 
What if I won millions of dollars tomorrow? Would I be significantly happier? Or would it follow suit that because I hadn't earned it, maybe it wouldn't contribute to my overall happiness to the level that I expect? Now, this led me down a very strange rabbit hole about lottery winners. You might be familiar with the idea of the curse of the lottery. And in fact, if you look up the curse of the lottery, you will find countless anecdotes of families torn apart, leeching friends, murder, attempted suicide, stress, addiction, depression, and all number of terrible things. You'll almost certainly get the picture that more money does indeed lead to more problems if you look this up. It sounds like a true crime podcast in and of itself, the curse of the lottery. Maybe it is. If it's not, someone should make one. But my question was, is that really the case? Or is that just reflective of a few specific anecdotes that we've pumped up in the media because it sounds counterintuitive and it makes us feel better for not winning the lottery, playing devil's advocate. So I had a look at some studies. A now famous study from 1978 interviewed 22 people who'd won big in the lottery, 22 people in a control group, and 29 people who'd become paralyzed due to an accident. And they wanted to see when it comes to happiness, if habituation would come into effect. So the idea of habituation, or as it's otherwise known, the hedonic treadmill, is the concept that all of us have a base happiness level. And we all return to that level eventually, regardless of the good or bad things that happen over time. So if you have a positive event, like a pay rise or a holiday or buying a new car, eventually you'll get used to that, you'll adapt to it, and you'll return to your base level of happiness. So here, the idea of habituation would mean that if I won the lottery, it might be great for a little while, but then eventually I would return to normal and I would not actually be that much happier day to day. So some results. First of all, lottery winners and the control group, that is the people who were just normal people who hadn't won the lottery, they were pretty similar in terms of how happy they rated their past, present, and potential future happiness over the next couple of years. The lottery winners scored slightly higher in all three, but overall, it doesn't seem particularly significant. Another interesting observation was that lottery winners found less happiness in mundane parts of day-to-day -day life. The researchers suggested that this might be because winning the lottery itself is such an extremely positive event, that's how it's perceived, it might almost dilute the pleasure or excitement from then on that you get from daily events. They said, quote, Initially, such an event may be expected to depress ratings of related but less spectacular events by contrast. Over time, such an event may be expected to cease having any effect on general happiness ratings through habituation. In all of this, the researchers do suggest that happiness is relative. Even though we can see some negative ideas around winning the lottery here, in 2018, a survey conducted on a sample of Swedish lottery winners and players found that although happiness and mental health weren't necessarily significantly affected by winning the lottery, over the long term of a decade, those who'd won big in the lotto felt a lot more satisfied with their life generally, which goes to the big life evaluation assessment. So it does seem that winning the lottery can be a little bit stressful at first because suddenly you have to figure out how to manage large sums of money in your life. But then overall, its effects are neutral, positive or negative, depending on where you look. Anecdotally, you get the stories of people who spend all their money and then face depression and well-being issues because then they have to readjust back to their old lifestyle. As Seneca has said, quote, money tumbles into the hands of certain men as a coin tumbles down a sewer. But then for lottery winners from some studies, it seemed like it might trend upwards on the life satisfaction side, similar to wealth, 
but not quite as impactful in the long term on our day to day happiness. Cool. I think from all of this, we can conclude that money is not the only thing, but it certainly is something and it can contribute to our day to day happiness to an extent and to our overall life satisfaction in the long term, which all seems logical if we think about it in terms of the human desire for security. You'd probably feel more satisfied with life if you'd set yourself up financially. So my next thought was, okay, if we delve into this a little bit more, one curiosity that I had was, what is the go with millionaires? What's their deal? I get that they might have higher levels of life satisfaction than us, but why? Could there be reasons outside of the fact that they are millionaires? So lucky for me, I found a really cool study from last year in 2019 on this very subject. This study in the Netherlands found that while millionaires had higher levels of life satisfaction overall compared to the general population, they suggested that one reason why they're happier might not be because of how they spend their money, but how they spend their time. They found that millionaires spend 22% of their time on active leisure activities. So that's things like exercising, volunteering, hobbies. However, not only did the general population do less active leisure activities, they did way more passive leisure activities like relaxing, watching TV, or literally, and this is on the survey, hilarious, doing nothing. <laughs> so both groups did both active and passive leisure activities, but the fact that the millionaires did much more active than passive and the general population was the opposite led the researchers to assert that actually, Maybe these people are happier because they use their time towards better things. So perhaps in all of this, money is not the thing, but freedom is the thing. And then when money allows us the freedom to do what we want to do, it helps us, but only to a point. When I was talking to a friend about this, about money and ambition and financial goals, she said that the most important phrase for her was money is not the problem. Love of money is the problem. And I do think it's about time we heard some more from our ancient philosophers on all of this, considering the nature of this pod. Pretty much all the ancient philosophy I went through warned of the dangers of ambition in the sense of seeking out money and material things. Ambition in this way was certainly considered a negative, a vice, and not a virtue. Some examples. Plato says, quote, Grant that I may become fair within, and that such outward things as I have may not war against the spirit within me. May I count him rich who is wise. And as for gold, may I possess so much of it only as a temperate man might bear and carry with him. They all seem to be wary of the fact that material things can bring with them other evils like greed or greater needs for adoration or an urge to do bad things in order to get more money. So it aligns to this idea that money itself is nothing. It's how we respond to it, how we react to it, and how we think of it that matters. If it overtakes what's important, like your character and who you are, if it comes to define you, then you're going in the opposite way that you should. And the virtue of temperance that Plato mentioned works hand in hand with ambition because the idea of temperance is about avoiding greed, gluttony, lust, desire, being able to hold back from what you don't need. And that one is a classic ancient virtue and perhaps a nice way to avoid some of those evils that can come from ambition. So money seems to be framed as kind of like this smoke and mirrors concept where you think it's going to solve your problems or give you everything you've ever wanted, but 
it's actually only there to give you false short-term pleasures and overall it can lead you down a really really bad road you see this in the modern world even on a smaller scale i was talking to a friend today about the golden handcuff situation as a prime example where someone might stay in a toxic work environment or do something that doesn't fulfill them or making sacrifices they don't want to make purely because of the contractual promises of more money coming that's a small example but i think it's relevant Seneca talks about how it is the mind and not the sum that makes a man rich. He says, quote, the man that would be truly rich must not increase his fortune, but retrench his appetites. For riches are not only superfluous, but mean, and little more to the possessor than the looker-on. What is the end of ambition and avarice, when at best we are but stewards of what we falsely call our own? And finally, one more, the one I liked the most, quote, Throw a crust of bread to a dog, he takes it open-mouthed, swallows it whole, and presently gapes for more. Just so do we with the gifts of fortune. Down they go without chewing, and we are immediately ready for another chop. And all of this is interesting because Seneca himself was a very rich man. So on the face of it, it seems kind of hard to reconcile those two ideas. He had a lot of wealth and he actually addressed at one stage pretty much saying, well, some people want to throw the metaphorical stone at us philosophers because they judge us and they say that we might not walk the walk. And he in part seems to suggest that people need to focus on themselves instead. And we're all human. So focus on your own journey, focus on the fire in your backyard and not mine. And he says, quote, if I do not live as I preach, take notice that I do not speak of myself, but virtue nor am I so much offended with other men's vices as with my own. I would also like to consider the Epicurean view here. I don't remember if I spoke about the Epicureans a couple of episodes ago, but they are often misunderstood because the Epicurean general thesis on life is that we need to seek out pleasure. And I suppose the instinctive response to that is, okay, cool, gonna go eat lots of ice cream, lay on a beach all day, fulfill my life that way, Beautiful. But no, that's actually not how they take it. And it doesn't lead to these ideas that we should be these indulgent, overly luxurious people. And in fact, Epicurus himself, he lived pretty minimally. I've read so many times for some reason that for him, a big luxurious treat would be a pot of cheese. Otherwise, he was, you know, super minimalist. But he loved a good pot of cheese. I mean, same Epicurus. I feel you. But they do think that you should not be seeking out exceedingly luxurious stuff. And that, according to their theory, is actually not as pleasurable because those things don't profit the body or the spirit. And it's much better to be acquainted to an obscure, simple way of living. Quote, it may be gratifying at times to have luxuries thrown at our feet, but nature does not demand them. Nor is she concerned if your house does not gleam with silver and flash with gold, and if there are no panelled and gilded ceilings re-echoing to the loot. Nature is not concerned about these things when people may together recline on soft grass between the branches of a tall tree near a stream of water. Thus, since riches, noble lineage, and the prestige of power in no way profit the body of a man, we may surmise that they profit in his mind no more. In other words, I think Epicureans are kind of like a stereotype of all of the mums in the universe. Imagine when you're a kid and you're pleading with your mum to buy some stupid toy that you won't even care about in a month's time, and she says to you, hey, why don't you go play outside instead? Both Epicureans and mums recognise that all the good stuff we'll ever need is actually already available to us. 
And so in all of this, we're definitely getting this idea that according to our ancient philosophers, everything comes down to focusing inwards rather than outwards. So if we can heed the warnings from our ancient philosophers not to spend our whole lives looking for material things that won't fulfill us, and we can appreciate that money can make us happy only to a certain point, now I want to expand our definition and look at ambition on a broader level. Ambition in the very culturally popular way of being driven, goal-oriented, striving to achieve in what you do. I've always used this word in a positive way, although someone like Seneca includes the word ambition in a list of wicked words like lust, gluttony, envy, sloth and fear. But I do think there is nuance in the sense of good and bad ambition from the ancient philosophers. So first I wanted to look at the top level achievers in different industries and see if there was any relation between their achievements and their well-being or happiness. I didn't actually find so much on the happiness side and if anyone listening has, I'd love to hear about it. But I did end up tunneling down an incredibly strange rabbit hole full of odd and highly debated findings, which I want to share with you because you might also listen to these and like I did, respond out loud to yourself like, what? So, so here we go. First, I revisited a study I'd seen on social media a while back on Academy Award winners. The study from 2001 found that those actors who'd won an Academy Award had a life expectancy of about 3.9 years longer than for other actors who were less recognized and only nominated. Their idea is what they call the survival advantage in that if you have high status in the public eye, you'll live longer. Now, mind you, another study five years later reanalyzed the results and they determined it was only a year longer, so it lacked statistical significance. But still, the concept that if I achieve the highest possible results in the acting field, I'll live longer than my nominated colleagues, that's pretty interesting. Then I looked at Olympic medalists. These ones are also full of controversial findings that have been debated since. So we take everything with a grain of salt here, but one study from 1995 assessed Olympic medalists. They looked at bronze, silver and gold medalists and they found that bronze medalists seemed happier than silver medalists after they analyzed all their emotional reactions at the end of their events and while they were standing at podiums receiving their medals. And I thought that's a bit odd, isn't it? You're better off coming in third than second. So I I explored that some more. I found another study from only a couple of years ago that found similar to Academy Award winners, life expectancy was also different based on what kind of Olympic medal you won. They found that gold and bronze medalists didn't have a significant difference, but that silver medalists had a life expectancy of 2.4 years less than gold medal winners and 3.9 years less than bronze medalists. So, okay, I mean, based on this idea, if I have ambitions for the Olympics, I really want to come first or third, but not second. I mean, that really brings more gravity to the phrase second is first to lose, doesn't it? When they looked at these findings, one of the key theories around it was that it could probably be explained by the specific goals that each medalist had. They posit that for a bronze medalist, their big goal was most likely to place somewhere, to achieve a medal. They might not have been going for first, so a bronze is an awesome win. But for a silver medalist, in all likelihood, they weren't shooting for silver. They were probably going for gold, and ended up getting silver, which is why they might not see it as a moment of goal attainment. And actually, if we follow that to the most logical conclusion, they could even see it as a failure compared to their expectational goal. So again, this is all highly debated, but super interesting. And does this extend to other industries as well? 
I found a 2008 study that found once again that winners live longer. This time they looked at Nobel Prize winners in science and found that winners lived on average one to two years longer than the nominees. I tried to find something similar on CEOs or somewhere in business, but I couldn't find anything. Actually, the closest I got there was a vague suggestion that CEOs get stressed out and need to be careful of their physical health. So that was of no help to us here. Overall, though, we're seeing a bit of an indication that perhaps the impact of ambition on our lives is relative to the specific goals we set for ourselves. On broader ambition more generally, there definitely seems to be two sides of the coin. On the one hand, Marcus Aurelius said, a man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. And you have people like himself and even others who demonstrate in their own lives a high level of what we would today call ambition. Cicero and Seneca both had extreme political ambitions. Cicero, particularly from what I've read, was a super ambitious person. But then on the other side, you have Seneca's words, quote, Ambition is like a gulf. Everything is swallowed up in it and buried beside the dangerous consequence of it. For that which one has taken from all may easily be taken away again by all from one. He talks about an example of the mad love of a deceitful greatness, which led to starting wars and political breakdowns. So here, ambition is clearly a vice rather than a virtue. The other story I like from this is from memory along the lines of imagining you have a jar and in the jar, there's a bar of gold in there, but then there's also a serpent in the jar. So as you go to take the gold, chances are you'll be bitten by the serpent. It's a nice image of the message in a sense that it's not the gold itself, but what usually comes with gold that's bad. Aristotle's perspective on virtue is interesting. You might remember that Aristotle considers virtues on a scale. So we want to hit the middle. Too much or too little of something and it leads us astray. Virtue in the case of ambition is a tricky one because it's hard to find a word that actually means a good amount of ambition. Too much is too ambitious, not enough is unambitious. And in particular, the vice here, the point of excess where you have too much ambition is related to too much of a love of honor where you're looking for validation from outside. You're looking to be loved by others and for public recognition and that's what's driving your ambition. Many of our philosophers would probably advocate for the good, healthy, proper kind of ambition as progressing ourselves in areas that are important and that we can control. Developing our virtues that are important like temperance, self-discipline, our mindset, seeking out knowledge and learning, growing our skills in areas that we prioritize and perhaps also including in that our career or our community or our home life but caring much more about our personal progression rather than how many standing ovations we're getting because of it. So what I'm thinking so far is that ambition can be good insofar as it has good intentions behind it and is sought for the right reasons, but there seems to be a line in the sand somewhere where it becomes a vice as opposed to a virtue. One might argue that the line in the sand comes down to ego. To what extent are you doing what you're doing for the sake of perception or trying to fill a void in your life through money or for people to applaud you? Someone else might think of the stereotypical insecure achiever, the person who's constantly pushing themselves to do more for no other reason than they need to fill their void of insecurity. Whereas I'm almost certain the ancient philosophers would say to that person, instead of trying to validate your worth outwards through other people and possessions, you need to turn inwards because this kind of ambition is not serving anyone. Certainly, no one in the philosophy schools suggests that we shouldn't do anything. As humans, we have to fulfill our function. For Aristotle, we have to use the unique trait of humans, which is our rationality, 
to seek out excellence, whether that's in art or medicine or plumbing or as a parent or an artist or a writer or an athlete, it doesn't really matter which one, but we should focus on developing excellence through great habits in whichever path we go down. There's also an awesome meditation from Marcus Aurelius that I think fits in really nicely here. And Marcus Aurelius's meditations, by the way, is probably one of the coolest, easiest to read books of ancient philosophy that I've ever come across. And one of the things that's so cool about it is it was a private kind of journal that he used to write in. It was never meant to be the big public phenomenon that it's become. It's literally him writing to himself, reminding himself of things and pushing himself to live his best life. I think that's part of why I like it so much because here you have an emperor being so reflective with himself and really trying to challenge himself to enhance his own virtue. Anyway, one of his meditations reads like he's trying to motivate himself to get out of bed. <laughs> And you can just imagine him all snuggled up in bed thinking to himself, oh, I don't want to meet with whoever today to talk strategy about our next battle or whatever. And he's trying to convince himself, no, you have to execute. You have to do things. And in it, he talks about the human function. So this is what he says. At dawn, when you have trouble getting out of bed, tell yourself, I have to go to work as a human being. What do I have to complain of if I'm going to do what I was born for? the things I was brought into this world to do? Or is this what I was created for, to huddle under the blankets and stay warm? <sighs> but it's nicer here. Oh, so you were born to feel nice instead of doing things and experiencing them? Don't you see the plants, the birds, the ants and the spiders and bees going about their individual tasks, putting the world in order as best they can? And you're not willing to do your job as a human being. Why aren't you running to do what your nature demands? Oh, but we have to sleep sometime. Agreed. But nature set a limit on that, as it did on eating and drinking, and you are over the limit. You've had more than enough of that, but not of working. There, you're still below your quota. You don't love yourself enough. Or you'd love your nature too and what it demands of you. People who love what they do wear themselves down doing it. They even forget to wash or eat. Do you have less respect for your own nature than the engraver does for engraving? The dancer for the dance? The miser for money or the social climber for status? When they're really possessed by what they do, they'd rather stop eating and sleeping than give up practicing their arts. Is helping others less valuable to you? Not worth your effort? I love this because it tells us that we all need to have the ambition and the motivation to do. No matter what our purpose or career is, we have to throw ourselves into it with our whole selves. And that's what humans are here for. And we know that ambition in the sense of persisting towards a goal or progress in an area has to have some virtuous aspects to it. It's how we end up with technological innovation, new markets and businesses, People doing incredible things in sport and pushing their bodies to become almost superhuman in some ways. People discovering new things in science and helping to make our world better. To me, there's no wonder why we have this glorification of the hustler, the person who never stops until they get what they want. But certainly, you have the questions around whether that means you end up sacrificing things that are also important for your own happiness. Or whether you can go too far chasing the power and the accolades rather than the constructive things that make you happier. One study was written about in Fortune magazine, and the study was from about 2012. It found by tracking over 700 people in terms of their ambition, health and happiness over time, that more ambitious people were more likely to be outwardly successful. 
that's unsurprising. That is, they're more likely to go to good colleges, acquire more status and get more income in their careers. But they also found that they weren't much happier than a control group of more chilled people. Their life satisfaction was only slightly higher and also that their longevity was actually slightly negatively correlated. Overall, the study optimistically points out that being ambitious and driven towards achievement doesn't seem to turn most people into monsters, which is reassuring. There are still positive outcomes in terms of success and slightly on life satisfaction. But there are also suggestions that maybe in the pursuit of high goals, ambitious people have the potential to sacrifice other important things like their health or their relationships. And that might contribute to something like a slightly negatively correlated longevity as they found in the study. Certainly, there is a social narrative of the bad side of ambition. We can see it. There's the idea of the anxious and depressed overachiever, the concept of the workaholic who is working so much to try and avoid dealing with problems in their life. Their ambitions are a distraction from their real self. Or the idea that ambition leads to perfectionism, which itself leads us to eternally suffering. There is research that shows perfectionism has been increasing steadily over time. So we might be more susceptible now to defining our self-worth on our results or being more self-critical. And you surely couldn't associate that with a positive effect on happiness. And then there's an increased fear of failure that could be tied to ambition. And fear of failure undeniably would have more of a negative effect rather than a positive effect on someone's well-being. So much of our modern conceptions of ambition require external validation that's out of our control. And I think in the current day, this kind of thing could be the modern equivalent of the dark side of ambition. We have so many students in school or uni and people entering them to their first corporate roles or even moving up, and they expect the best for themselves and seem to live in almost this kind of loop of pushing for external reward to validate their self-worth. I can resonate with that. And I think now that I look at it that way, you could also see that this is perpetuated through our kind of hustle, hustle culture, which at its core insinuates that you'll never be enough until you've achieved more. And that's an impossible state to put oneself in because there is always going to be more potential for achievement. So the idea of reaching your potential is a limitless one. And even though that's positive by itself, it could mean that you're never satisfied because there's always more to do. And that person might achieve more and that by itself is great, but is there enough joy in living a life where you're never content, you never think you've done enough, you're always not there yet? I think there's certainly some capacity for really negative spirals there. And yet, as we've said, certainly being unambitious is arguably not a positive state to be in. The concept of moving forward, of progression, which is tied to our modern view of ambition, is also present all throughout ancient philosophy in the sense that we're on this journey as a personal journey to become better and to live better. I think for the current time, we want to at least briefly look at goal setting as an area that kind of epitomizes our modern ambition culture. Goal setting is the next big thing in self-development. You see it everywhere. I do sessions on it. And I want to explore that a little bit because we could look at this as maybe the cure to ensuring we develop ambition in a positive way. Or maybe it's something that contributes if we're goal setting too much and too focused on it. Maybe that contributes to a darker kind of vice side of ambition. Some goal setting research indicates that even though setting high goals creates an initial feeling of dissatisfaction, when you go on to actually succeed and achieve your goals, you're more likely to set even bigger ones and it leads you to long-term higher life satisfaction. So from that, goals can be good, especially big challenging ones. 
Another study I found here looked at what kind of goals were being set. The study found that you are more likely to maintain positive psychological health and well-being if you pursue goals that are intrinsically aspirational rather than extrinsically aspirational. So what those words mean, intrinsic is like your inner goals. It's related to personal growth, relationships, physical health, and your community. And extrinsic includes things like goals for money, fame, being physically attractive, the really external things. So intrinsic is inner, extrinsic is external. And aligned with a decent body of research, the suggestion is that intrinsic goals connect more to self-determination theory in the sense of achieving real autonomy, real competence and relatedness, and therefore intrinsic goals are more likely to improve our life satisfaction. So from that, even though hitting goals can be good, goals related more to progress on the self and intrinsic aspirations seem to be more important than the empty ambition-based goals. And all of this seems to align a lot with our philosophers. But then on the other side of the coin, because there always is one, it seems there are some potentially harmful effects of over-prescribing goal setting. One working paper, which looked at it in context of goals at work, argued that goals can be harmful in that they might result in people doing unethical things or wrong things in, in order to try and achieve a goal. They might lose focus and neglect all of the things outside of the goal, which in a work environment is not very good because then you're only focused on one part of your work and not the rest of it. They argue that it can reduce intrinsic motivation and result in the corrosion of organizational culture. So it seems as though even goal setting is not safe from the potentially wrong side of ambition. It reminds me a little bit of the serpent and the gold idea in the jar right there. But if we follow on with this concept of a good ambition that's founded in good intent and striving for excellence and service, we might look at money in a different light. Is it right to pursue money if you have a noble reason for doing so? Because there's probably some validity to the idea that if you really want to have a positive impact on the world, having a lot of money can help you do that. So is it how we spend our money that can make a difference there? Some research, for example, indicates that pro-social spending, in other words, using your money to help others, can contribute to our happiness. They posit that we all have an inherent human desire to collaborate with and help each other. So if we can do that financially, it makes us feel good. And the extent to which a great desire and ambition for money is justified by how you spend it still remains probably an ethical question that leads us down the ends justifying the means kind of areas if we were to take on that ancient philosophical notion that more money and desire for money is an inherently negative or evil thing. But it's definitely another thoughtful prompt to consider in our relationship with money. The other thing that's interesting is that based on the surveys I've read here, it seems like we might have some generational differences in terms of our spending. In one survey, more than three quarters of millennials said they'd rather spend their money on experiences than material things. So more traveling, adventures, concerts, parties, and other kinds of events. And this makes me wonder if this inclination is a step away from materialism and the evil kinds of ambitions the ancient philosophers talk about, if it's a step towards this good ambition based on intrinsic development, or is it simply a new form of materialism? I mean, you could argue that lots of people go on holidays not because it will be a positive, constructive experience where they can see a new place and learn and so on, but more because then they can increase their clout on social media. 
a lot of the experiences that we go through now also have what you could call a kind of end product that comes out of it in the form of photos and content and things that we can put out there. So I do wonder if that actually is different at all or if it's simply the new form of materialism, which is materialism in the form of evidence that costs a lot of money to pursue or evidence that costs a lot of time or energy to pursue. I don't know. I mean, regardless, though, I guess there is an additional layer of intent then behind the intent to what we're doing with our money. But then that leads us again back to bad ambition, which is driven by selfish desires and power and control that we don't want. And we could look at the same good and bad ambition idea for politics. Plato famously talks about the reluctant politician, which is the idea that if you're the kind of person who really wants to go into politics, you probably shouldn't go into politics. Because if you want politics and you like the idea of ruling over everyone and you're attracted to that wealth and power and control in all of it, then you really shouldn't be trusted as a ruler. So Plato asserts that the best people will only be willing to rule if the consequence of not ruling is a punishment. And that includes the punishment of, okay, well, if I don't do it, I'm going to end up with these ding-dongs ruling my country instead, and that would be really bad. And I like this because the inference is also that politics is still important. Ambition in the sense of profession is still very important, but it's about the why behind it and the deeper levels under it all. And we can definitely see this kind of move towards ambition in the sense of a professional obligation or doing what we can for society in a lot of the different philosophy schools. The Stoics talk about how we need to be in harmony with the universe, and that means that we have to be an active part of society. definitely seems to be an ongoing theme here that it's not really a question of whether or not we should be ambitious, but rather where our ambitious energy is taking us, whether it's resulting in us being more self-disciplined, more just, better people of greater character and ultimately happier people or not. So in all of this, where do we land? I think we're in a weird area with this one because it seems like it's a pretty fuzzy line between doing something out of ambition in a good way and doing something out of ambition in a bad way. How do we know which side of the line we sit on? Maybe it comes down to the person where you have to be able to reflect on yourself on whether you've chosen a path for the right reasons, whether you're pushing yourself for the right reasons, whether you have good intentions. Because, I mean, how could we possibly know in an objective way, aside from the most extreme cases, where someone is ambitious in a virtuous way or in a vice way? What right do you or I or anyone have to assess that? I think in the modern setting, once again, our circumstances in 2020 lend us to a unique position because if you've been caught in the cycle of doing for the sake of doing, then perhaps now is a time when you can assess if you've been running on autopilot rather than consciously striving for progress in things that will contribute constructively to your life and to others. Everyone's different and I know some people are happy as a clam to have a job they don't hate and focus on time with their family and friends and other people are happier if they spend more time working on a business that they're passionate about for example. We all have different desires and I think the key thing we can come to is really assessing those desires and trying to ensure we aren't distracting ourselves with what we think will get us somewhere eventually if it's not realistically going to fulfill us and too much of a sacrifice to our actual living and present life. To explain what I mean a little more, I'm going to turn to Seneca again. He talks about how if you cease to hope, you will cease to fear. And that even though it seems like a distant connection, actually fear and hope are interlinked. 
he says, quote, both belong to a mind in suspense, to a mind in a state of anxiety through looking into the future. Both are mainly due to projecting our thoughts far ahead of us instead of adapting ourselves to the present. Thus, it is that foresight, the greatest blessing humanity has been given, is transformed into a curse. I personally read this as, if we hold on too tightly to the ultimate outcomes we want for ourselves, especially when they're things that we can't actually control, like how much money we'll make or acquiring fame, things that aren't ultimately up to us, then we will live in the anxiety of our own expectations and really cease to live at all. And this is why it makes sense that our focus is more on habits and developing processes and progressing ourselves and things that we do have control over that should be more important than an inflexible goal where we are always moving the goalposts further and further apart. And it's tricky because, of course, there's that good side of ambition and achievement. But I think in all of this, that's the core concept that I've come to here, that ambition is a deeply personal trait that is good for as long as it serves us and doesn't harm others. It can help us to live the lives we want, but when you're so caught up in attainment, you stop being able to actually live because your only focus is on the future. So perhaps the progress should be the outcome. And in all of it, certainly we need to be able to stay present and stop and smell the roses more and show gratitude and appreciate ourselves to ensure that we don't get caught up in this lifelong race against ourselves. Our next episode will be on tranquility and presence and finding calm in the chaos. So I think that might be a nice follow on from this one. So bringing it all together, I think this episode just about broke my brain. (laughs) I've always thought of ambition pretty exclusively as a positive thing, frankly. And I love goal setting and I've always bought into the idea of doing more and executing more. And I've been like that since I was a kid. So for this one, I had to challenge a lot of my own assumptions. And frankly, that's probably why it took so long to make this episode. So in sum, first, does more money make us happier? I think the conclusion here is yes, it does to a certain point in the sense that money gives us more freedom to do the things we want to do. Quite specifically, if you're in Australia, you want to earn 50K US a year for your day-to-day happiness to be maximized. And I think it was 120K US a year for your life satisfaction to be hap- uh, to be maximized. But money itself is not the actual creator of happiness, so it can only be a means to so much. And there's a very clear point that money is not everything, and so thinking that it's everything is going to cause some problems for one's happiness. And in some circumstances, it may be that money ties itself to other bad things like greed, more desires, false short-term pleasures that can lead to poor decision-making, and a loss of understanding of what life is actually about. And then we have ambition in the broader sense, which the science tells us can be a good thing, make us more successful, slightly increase our happiness, and even potentially our lifespan if we win some awards or certain medals, or it might reduce our longevity a bit, depending on the research you look at. Certainly, all our philosophers advocate for self-development and improvement, excellence and habits, which we could call a kind of ambition. And we know that goal setting can be a positive thing for our overall life satisfaction, especially if it's related to more of those intrinsic qualities. But then there's the dark side of ambition, where we are so focused on and anxious about the future, we stop living in the present, where we sacrifice what's important for what we think will magically fulfill us later on, where we surround ourselves with expensive things and don't focus on who we are, but rather what we have, where we aren't living in harmony with the universe anymore, but at the beck and call of external things that we can't control. 
where we set goals that lead us to unethical behaviors, lack of focus, and a bunch of negative things. And where because of all of that, we can't find tranquility or presence. We don't have temperance. We can't actually live in our lives because our concept of living is always in the future that will never come. In which, as Seneca says, ambition begets ambition. So is ambition a vice or a virtue? Quite simply, it seems it can very much be both. And I suppose it's up to us to reflect on our own ambition, what we're doing, what we want to do, what we hope to do, whether we're pursuing the right things for the right reasons or whether we're not. Certainly now in a time where the economy is doing weird backflips and businesses are facing so much change and industry is being forced to adapt and people are changing their plans from a business perspective and a career perspective all over the place, now's a great time to think about what do I actually want? What is worth me persisting and driving myself towards achieving? How can I use ambition in a way that at the end of all of this, I can say that was a good decision? And hey, I mean, we're all human, so we all probably will get it wrong at one stage or another, but it's a good time to think about it. I know I've been thinking about it a lot as a result of this episode. Thank you for listening again today. I'm Sonia Diab, and as always, you can find me on Instagram at Sonia Speaking, or you can find the podcast at Uncomfortable Millennials. Again, because this pod is still very much a baby, I do have two requests to ask of you if you enjoyed the podcast. The first one is if you can share it with people who might also enjoy it or gain some value from it, that would be incredibly appreciated from my side. And also, thank you for those who have been putting up ratings on Apple Podcasts. Really appreciate that one as well. If you did like it and you think it deserves it, a review would be fantastic. Nice little five stars would be fantastic. Um, Not because of my personal ambition where I'm trying to get external validation here, although I won't say no to it, but more because it actually helps the podcast to gain more reach. And so in its early days at the moment, I really want this to be able to get out to as many people as possible. And that can really help us to achieve that. So thanks again. Have a good one. I'll speak to you next week.